Welcome to Inside Stories, where Baltimoreans discuss perspectives on incarceration. Our first guest is Mr. Mark DeMines. I went to prison at 16. It was drug-related. But the twist was the guy that was killed was what we called in Baltimore City at the time as a stick-up guy, a guy that robbed drug dealers. And a fight broke out, and ultimately the guy was, was shot and killed. And I was sentenced to life at 16. Life in 23 years. The hardest thing about prison for me was the mental thing, the, the not knowing, you know. I didn't walk around worrying about being attacked or, or violated sexually or anything of that nature as a kid, as a young guy, because of, I had a lot of friends from my neighborhood there that were older who was already in there who looked out for me. I had an older brother who was in there who looked out for me. A couple cousins, relatives. Most of my problems in prison was emotional from a mental standpoint, you know, these are things that you battle with in your head, you know, because it seemed like when that door closed and you in that cell, everything seemed worse than what it really is. If I, I never made no suicide attempts. Uh, you know, some days I may have crossed my mind that, boy, if I just die, this will be over. What would you say was your biggest fear when you were in prison? I developed two fears while I was in prison. One being my mother dying while I was in prison and me, myself, dying of old age in prison. They was my two biggest fears because I would see guys that would stand and die. And I was just talking to them yesterday or the day before or, or lunchtime and then he did by dinner. So that, that was my fear. Dying in prison of old age or being killed in prison. I didn't want them two things to happen. I, I wanted to go out the way I came in, walk out. How did you deal with it? I mean, what were some of the things that allowed you to maintain your sanity? My first reaction was that of the most traveled role, which was getting in trouble, using drugs, things of that nature. That was my coping mechanism, getting high. But then it came a time where I believe in 1984, 85, I took my shahada and became Muslim. And as time went on, I started taking the, the dean kind of seriously. And I discovered it because, you know, most of my friends was in the Islamic community. And every Friday at one o'clock, everybody in the population had disappeared because the Muslims outnumber all the other religions in the jail, by the way. And so every Friday, everybody was gone. And when I'd be looking for somebody, I couldn't find them. They ain't want to see They ain't in the yard. They had Juma. You know, and guys used to tell me, I used to say, man, such and such happened while y'all was at Juma. And they'd be like, if you was at Juma, then, you, you know, you wouldn't have got caught up in that or that wouldn't have went on. So, you know, I started giving it some thought and I started really giving it some thought and I started reading it, reading, reading, reading. And God led me to the religion. I believe that's what he wanted for me because it came a time where I thought I wasn't going to never get out of prison. And I told God that I'm going to be cool with that decision. If he thinks that this is better for me than anything else he got in the world, if prison is the best thing for me, then I would take that. And I would go to my grave knowing that I received the best that God had to offer for me. I never set the prison and dwelled on the fact that I was here for something I didn't do. I didn't, I didn't think that I, see, I didn't think I was innocent because I actually pulled that trigger. I actually was selling drugs. But nevertheless, what led to me getting life was the fact that I had a ballistic expert named Joseph Capurro. 
he flat out lied in, the, in my case and forged some evidence and told the people that the story that I gave couldn't have happened that way. The evidence showed that we was at close range, such a close range that when the shot was fired, it caused singeing and burning of the individual's skin and his clothes. But he got on the stand and told the jury that oh, the man was running away. And my life wasn't in danger, so I shouldn't have fired a shot. Every other expert came and testified that it, that physical evidence could not exist without it being a close contact uh, shooting. Mr. Joseph Caparo, he committed suicide in 2007, I believe. Even we found out the expert had lied. It still took me another 12 years of fighting to ultimately be uh, released from prison. And I kept going in front of a judge named Peters, and Peters was hard. He kept shooting it down. So... Somehow, a lawyer, my lawyer said he was going to talk to the, a court clerk. So in 2017, he filed the petition. By 2018, they said that they would hear the petition. Uh, I told my friends, man, I was going to court. I had a court date. Unbeknownst to me, when I went to court that morning, and the lawyer came downstairs and said, we got some developments that, that changes everything today. We're not going to have to hear it's going to be a little different when you go up there. So when I went upstairs, uh, Mr. Gaddy's brother was there. His brother was one of the people who was my tutor. He was a teacher how to read when I was little. And he told the judge, the state's attorney, and everybody in the courtroom that was present that his mother passed away, but before she died, she forgave me. He told a little about the history of knowing me and said that he forgave me and he didn't want me to die in prison and he wouldn't have no problem with the judge letting me go right then and there that day. Unfortunately, they didn't let me go that particular day, but within a matter of weeks, I was released from prison. The day that I was released from prison, around 12 o'clock, the judge made a decision. They sent me back to the prison around 7 that evening. They walked me out the door around 12 o'clock midnight, and, and they didn't even give me the $50 that they were supposed to give me in my account. The officers got together, got some money together, and gave me some money. And they was going to let me out by the horseshoe. Now, take it, I've never been down a horseshoe. I don't know where the horseshoe at. I just know that they said when they get off the highway, they're going to let me off at the corner of this street, that street, and I'm going to have to figure it out from there. You know, so it's basically be throwing out a moving car after 33 years of incarceration, and I got to figure it out. And while I'm figuring it out, don't get locked up. Don't do nothing wrong. Don't break no laws. Since I've been home, I, I managed, you know, I'm enrolled in, in college right now. I got engaged a couple months ago. I'll be married in June. I've been working since I've been home. I had a job. I got my driving license. I own a car. I do the same thing everybody else do now. I got the same 24 hours in my day that everybody got theirs now. And I say that to say I work, I pay bills, I exercise, I ride my bike, you know, and I live all the way out in the county. And I do want to say this, though, the prison. I didn't come out totally unscarred. You know, I, I, I really do believe that I have uh, little hangups because, you know, I, I still can't sleep with the bedroom door open. Every time I see a police drive past, I ain't doing nothing, but I, I take two, three looks back. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, just a, it's just one of them things. My recipe for success is to be practical. And when I say to be practical, meaning that I just, I just did 33 years. It would be a un, it would not be practical for me to come home after 33 years, get some money, take the last bit of money I got, go into a studio and say I'm gonna make a rap album. <laughs> I'm gonna be a rapper <laughs> at 53 years old, have to do for 33 years in prison. That is not practical. You know what I'm saying? The practical thing for me is to work, 
maintain family, respect other people. And my, and my value for human life is so way off the chart that I got to remind myself sometimes I can't save everybody. Because when I ride through Baltimore City, it needs saving. And I be wanting to get out of my car and help everybody. God softened my heart. I don't need much, I told him. I asked him, give me 20, 25 years of freedom, and I'm good after that. Our next guest is Mr. Kenneth Tucker. I became addicted to drugs at an early age, which consequently led to attempted robberies and different other ways of trying to obtain money in terms of feeding a, a drug habit that I, that I had acquired. And this, this, this was just the, the last straw. My family didn't know. A group of friends and I were getting high for off of heroin. We had been getting high for maybe like 18 months, maybe. And uh, it just got out of control. It was around about the time when, when, when a lot of guys in my neighborhood became curious. You know, most guys in my neighborhood, we're drinking on the corner, drinking wine, liquor on the corner, or we weren't even smoking weed at the time. So when, when the, another guy introduced us to heroin, uh, we didn't know anything about it at all. But the drug in itself is so powerful that within maybe like a few months, you know, we were already addicted. Me and another guy, we attempted to rob a guy. Both of us had guns. The guy flailed and, and, and I guess tried to avoid us. One of the guns went off and he was shot. At the time, I was 17. At the time, he was 16. Both of us were charged with first-degree murder. I received a life sentence. He received 50 years. I was one of the youngest guys in the Maryland penitentiary at that time. So it was an issue of dealing with adults that were incarcerated that had life sentences. Uh, it was violent. It was, it, was, it was brutal. I've seen two people get burned alive in a cell. That's one of the worst things I've seen. They got a chain and they chained the doors of the cell and someone threw a firebomb in the cell. And those bodies, when they came out, they were, you know, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Uh, never seen anything like this. When you got out, what was your mental process? What did you do to relieve your tra traumatic experience? Mentally, you, you know, you can never, well, me personally, I, you know, I would never forget every sight, every situation, every, every brutality, every act of violence that I've seen. I, I can never, ever forget none of those things. You know, you try to give back. I have a son and a daughter. I try to instill those values of the beauty of human life. And I give back in terms of dealing with certain gang members in Baltimore City. Just try to get them to see the bigger picture. You know, that, that violence in itself is really not the answer. You know, I constantly pray pray, pray. I constantly pray to try to, you know, ask God. I, I've asked God for forgiveness, and I think I've been forgiven. How did your lawyer save you from getting a, a full life sentence? Well, I got the life sentence, but uh, what happened was ACLU stepped into the picture uh, after I had 40 years now, and they formed a defense predicated around what they call juvenile lifers. Juvenile lifer was uh, someone that's been incarcerated, was convicted before the age of 18. Supreme Court uh, stated that if any event that you're convicted before the age of 18, 
there should be mitigating factors to determine your release. The state court let me out, not exonerated me entirely, but uh, reduced my sentence to time served. Uh, this happened in June of this year. So that's essentially how I got out. How did you feel when you were freed in June? How has your experience been these past few months? It's, it's so overwhelming that, I mean, this is, I mean, this this a multitude of feelings that engulfed me. I, I I mean, it's, 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 of course, it's elation and joy, but it's also uh, in dealing with the, the adjustment of society now because a lot of stuff going on now I didn't know anything about. I'm in a transition house as we speak, and from this transition house, I will acquire all the documentation I need, Social Security card, birth certificate, driver's license, things of this nature, and then I will go on to full employment. The number one thing I want to do is to try to quell some of this unnecessary violence because consuming the city is it's a driving force to a lot of negativity, and that's my main focus. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationships in your life with friends and family from when you were arrested to now? How have they changed? Well, <clears throat> the obvious is that many people have passed away. But for those who are still living, uh, it's been a strain because over the process of incarceration, the connection between my family and friends was broken. I had uh, maintained a few relationships, but overall, my family, I guess they felt like, well, he's never coming home. So in that regard, the, the, the communication kind of stopped. That in itself was another adjustment because once I was released, Many family and friends were surprised that I even came home or got to, got released. But in terms of the relationship in general, it's been fairly healthy, and my friends and family are very supportive. It's another ongoing process too. When I was released, uh, everyone met at my mother's apartment, and you know the joy and elation from that experience was none other. I I, I seen my children, seen my mom, uh, I seen a few cousins. And a few family friends. I mean, it was <laughs> it was like a screaming process, and uh, you know, everyone wanted to take it like a piece of me in a sense. Does it bother you that you were involved with someone losing their life, or has that gotten easier for you to deal with as time has gone on? Once once a life is lost it kind of eats you up like a cancer in a sense. And uh, it bothered me. I mean, it still bothers me. The process of healing is, is continuous for me because my heart is tattered. What I would like to reveal through my situation is that hopefully one of these gang members can see what they're doing is not only you know turning the community up, but it's destroying their own lives. Once I began the journey of trying to explore exactly why I did what I did, it led to a bunch of positive things, such as programming, education, because I did receive my AA degree and my Bachelor of Science degree. Uh, so what I did, once I got those degrees, I transformed that into different programs and, and, and helping gang members to escape out of that situation that they were in. And we developed a program called PEN. And what it did, it allowed it allowed gang members to what they call drop their flags. 
or be exonerated from whatever organization they were part of. So once I was released, I discontinued, I just extended that to the streets. We want to not only educate and, and help these gang members to drop their flags, but we also want to provide them with different options, maybe like uh, uh, trades or, or, or counseling or whatever they can do to help their communities. This is one of the reasons why ACLU contacted me, because they seen the work that I was doing inside the prison system to try to lead guys to more of a positive direction. What we did in prison, for the most part, we call man up. And what it dealt with is the fact that you have two males and whatever beefs is going on or whatever misunderstandings is going on, we talk about it. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did you feel this way? Now, I know in the heat of a situation, a lot of people don't don't feel the, uh, the need to 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 express anything verbally. But if you just step back for one moment, just step back for one moment and look at the entire situation, it doesn't really need that type of the violence. It doesn't really need, you know, in particularly uh, gun violence. You know, you pulling out a gun, which at the time perhaps it seems to be a quick solution. It also opens up a bombard of a lot of other things that perhaps uh, uh, will lead not only to your incarceration, but you would never see the streets again. So what I tell them, I say, well, look, just take one moment. You have a misunderstanding. Just take one moment, step back, and see the real significance of not only reaching out. Just reach out to the guy. Ask him what the problem really is. Because once you're in the heat of, once you're in the, heat of the situation, you just go straight forward. You don't you don't stop and think. You don't. You don't ask yourself, "Well, is this really important or is this really necessary?" In most cases, it's not. So, what I tell them to do, I say, "Well, look, just take a moment, step back, look at the entire situation, evaluate it, and determine whether this is really necessary." Our next guest is Mr. Stanley Bobbitt Jr. Growing up for me was like like the lower run. I spent a lot of time under my oldest brother watching him and his life. My birth mother, she left when I was like, probably like three or four. Basically told my father, take me with him or she's going to put me up for adoption. So when that time, um, I was a kid, but you can tell the difference in a child coming out of someone's womb and someone raising a child. So a lot of my feelings was like pushed to the side. I was wondering who I was, what was, what was my role in this family. I definitely was lost. I was just lost. Lost can be to sum it up. And I think nobody seen me as lost. They just seen it like, oh, he'll figure it out. He'll figure it out. Because my parents at the time, they was in there 35, 36-year-old. They just working, 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 working. Long, only thing they know is as long as we put, uh, keeping a, 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 a roof over their head, they fine. They fine. So we just going to work. We just going to work. We, we going to work. It was no communication. You know, I even had like sporting events. I tried, I played basketball, high school basketball. My, my parents never came. All that stuff boiled down to love. What you don't seek in your house, you seek somewhere else. I got in trouble all the way from elementary school to high school. Class clown, cracking jokes on people, just trying to be the funny guy. <laughs> I get everybody laughing, not taking life serious, not taking education serious. So I failed a lot of grades, but um, in DC, they had the no child left behind. So they just passed me along. They didn't really even care. Realized, like, I don't even know nothing. I don't know anything. In that time right there, I was just a follower. Looking for my big brother and other guys. Who's going to be good to me? Who's going to be nice to me? 
you know, doing a trend. Whatever the guys did, I was just too easy to influence. If I seen this guy with these nice shoes, these nice clothes, nice girl, I'm like, man, I want what he got. I even start walking like this guy, talking like this guy. And so anything it takes to be validated, I'm down with. Whether it's robbing, whether it's like setting somebody up, whatever, I'm with it. One time, I was in high school at the time, and guys were shooting dice in high school. And I, I had my like $20 in my pocket. And this guy, he probably had probably like $400 in his pocket. And he took one of my one of my friend's money in the dice game, took all his money. And my friend was like, man, we're going to rob him. And so we watched him put his uh, money in his coat. My man, like, just follow my lead. We tricked the dude to come outside to play basketball. And when he took his coat off, I picked up his coat and put on his coat. And I took the money out of his pocket. I was just a foolish kid. I graduated high school, and I ain't have no plan. Right after graduation, I was right outside with a bottle and some weed. Nobody was like, well, you should go off to college. You should do this. You should do that. My family, my mother and father suggested, but it wasn't pushed. So I was like, cool. You feel me? I'm, and I could, I'm throwing them off like, um, I need a... Uh, I need a great spirit to take my mind if I don't want to go right to school. Everybody was like, just get a job. Just get a job. Just get a job. And I was like, I'm watching dudes make hand, money hand over fist without a job. Man, they got their own schedule. Why would I get a job? Like, that don't make sense. I'm going to stand out here in this corner. That's going to be my job. To be honest, I thought I'd be the, one of the biggest drug dealers there is. Like, and I wasn't even selling drugs to the, for the recognition. It was for my family. I wanted, I wanted the money. I wanted the money. I know money changed things. I know money brings power. I know money makes people look at you in a different way. Money open doors that usually be shut in your face. So we came up with a plan to make some money for all of us. So we went and robbed the grocery store and we went inside and robbed the grocery store. I pulled the trigger and killed the young man. And when I killed the young man, my friends, they was in shock. They was in panic. And I was in shock and I was in panic. And we took the money and we just ran. I was numb. I became numb to life. Just thinking about that moment, my mind just was running like, damn, what just happened? I was trying to play it, digest it all in, but I really, I really couldn't. I just remember the, the shots going off and me pulling the trigger, watching this man collapse. So when we got back together, all of us, it was like, everybody good? And they asked me, like, you good? You good? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So that night, I went inside my mother's house. I went upstairs to my room and I changed my clothes. and um. Before I can walk out of the door, my mother was sitting there playing solitary at the computer. She was like, come here, come here, come talk to me. And I was like, Mom, I got somewhere to go. I got somewhere to be. She said, all you do is rip and run. That's all you do. You need to slow down. And I walked out the door. And uh, when I went outside, I went to a neighborhood park. And I just sit down in the park. And I smoked a blunt, looking at the sky. We used the money to advance us in the drug game. But as you know, with anything in life, it always checks and balance. So even though we felt like we was winning, we was losing at the same time. Because here we are holding this secret, digging our, our grave even much deeper into this, to this quote unquote underworld. We digging deeper into it. And sure enough, sure enough, it just was a matter of time before what you think you can run from eventually find you. I got locked up in July, like July 15th. Early June, the detective started uh, just hounding my mother's house. They was looking for me. They just wanted questions. I was progressing in the underworld 
but I didn't have really no cover up. So anyone who seen me, they knew like, oh, he's selling. He, you could just tell who got cash money in their pocket like that. Like you can't go nowhere and buy nothing. They ain't gonna have people know. Like even if you don't say it, they know. I was still in the underworld, but I was working a nine to five. It's crazy. I was working as a janitor, like at this school, and it was the sweetest job ever as a janitor in this big old day school out in Bowie, Maryland. Nobody know me out there, so I'm just working. And as I'm working, uh, my mother contacted me and let me know because I wasn't living at my mother at the time. She contacted me, let me know that the detective keep coming past her house looking for me. So she's like, "Did you do anything wrong out there? Because they looking for you." So I'm like, no, I ain't do nothing wrong. I don't know who they looking for me for. They, they got the wrong person. So the detective just keep coming, keep coming, keep hounding, keep hounding for like two weeks. So my father gives in. He like, I'm giving you a number. I'm giving them everything about you. So I'm at work one day and, he, and I had a new phone. A new phone number. The detective just called. He's like, I'm going to find you. He said, I, I just want you for questioning, but I'm going I'm to hound you down until you come in for questioning. If you never did nothing wrong, just come in for questioning. And I was like, all right, set it up. I said, I'm going to bring my mom with me just in case you try to lock me. The more the pressure started, like, the walls was closing in on me. So at the school I worked at, they had this big old field. So I went outside to the field. It was like a summer day. I went outside to the field, and I, and I looked up to the sky. And I asked God. I said, God, man, I ain't in control. I, I done did some messed up stuff in my life. I think this one I bit off more than I could chew. So I asked him, just take it. Just have it. Um, I surrender. I surrender, man. Just I need you to guide me. I need you. I need you to hold this thing up for me because what's in the dark come to the light. And um, I went down to the city detectives. They just gave me questions. They hit my mom with a warrant, searched the house, didn't find anything. And uh, I walked home. I got so drunk one night, and I ended up totaling my car, crashing my car. And I was in the state trooper barricade that night. And um. I was drunk, but I was I was like, man, I hope they don't run my fingerprints. I hope they don't lock me up tonight. I hope they don't lock me up tonight. I went home, and probably like a week later, at the, at, when I was working at the school, at, that morning, they came and locked me up right there. I just dropped my head. It was like, uh, do you know what you're under arrest for? I said, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And uh, the detective was like, yeah. We got you. Do you got anything you want to say? I said, I don't got nothing I want to say. Just take me where you're going to take me, and I'm going to make a phone call. I was 19 when I got incarcerated, and I got 20. I had a 20-year sentence, and I'm 33 now. I mean, so many people come back, come back, come back, take it for granted, come back, come back, come back. And I, and I made a vow to myself. I wasn't going to be one of them people, and at the same time, I'm not going to go back to my old vomit. I'm going to stay focused. And take it one day at a time. One day at a time. Absorb it in. It's a whole, with what people done done in 30 years or 13 years, I can't do in, in 30, in, how long about 39 days. I can't do that in 39 days. It's impossible. It's impossible. That'd be, that'd be something that man never thought of. So I got to take it. It took God seven days to create. Come on, man. I can't make nothing in no 39 days. So. I'm just taking my time, taking it one day at a time. Doing the right things, I believe, like, you reap what you sow. So if I keep doing the right things, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I don't want to miss my purpose on this on this earth. I feel like everything has a purpose. Everything. Even incarceration. Because if I didn't get incarcerated, and to be honest with y'all, I would have been dead. Because I was so caught up in the friendship. I was so caught up in 
trying to oppress these dudes that these dudes could tell me go around the corner. I would have went around the corner. That's how lost I was. Thank you for listening to Inside Stories, Perspectives on Incarceration. For full interviews, please visit www.filmartsbaltimore.org slash inside hyphen stories hyphen gallery. This work was made possible by Baltimore Youth Film Arts, Johns Hopkins University, and the Mellon Foundation.